I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. I wonder what else I could plant Mm -hmm. to attract bees. Oh, okay. And to kind of uh, encourage their health and and maybe other kind of pollinators. Mm -hmm. I'm not too familiar with kind of what that whole realm of pollinators includes. But we have with us this morning someone who does know an awful lot about pollinators and the state of pollinator health in uh, not only Minnesota, but in neighboring states. We've got with us this morning, Erin Rupp, who is the founder and executive director of Pollinate Minnesota. Good morning, Erin, how are you? Good morning, I am good. Good, good. How are you both? Oh, good, going good, thanks very much, Erin. Good. You know, Pollinate Minnesota, why did that organization come about? Can you tell us a bit about it first? So I, uh, I'm an informal science educator, so I really like teaching through doing, and I was working at the Bell Museum of Natural History, um, teaching with bees there, really wanted to put people in beekeeping suits and hang out with hives with me, um, and that wasn't something the university really wanted to do, so I started doing it and worked within a small business for a few years and then started my own organization. And then do advocacy work, too. The work that I do with second graders is not that different from the work I do with state senators. Um, <laughs> conversations are pretty similar. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say that that's a plus for those second graders. Okay. How important are bees and other pollinators to our food system? I mean, why care about it? this? I mean, if we like eating things that came to us from flowers, Uh, We need pollinators. And the things that come to us from flowers that we eat are fruits and nuts and vegetables. A lot of our diet is grain, and a lot of our grains are wind-pollinated, so don't rely on insect pollinators. But for everything else, you need something to help that plant grow that seed and fruit. So what what are included amongst those other insects so we have a good idea of what we mean by pollinators? Um, Beetles sometimes. Butterflies are absolutely pollinators. In Minnesota, we have over 400 different species of bee. Wisconsin is the same. Um, So there's a lot of diversity within this uh, work. Flies are pollinators. It strikes me, Erin, that some of those animals that we sometimes as humans consider pests, whether we're out working in the garden or on, on a tractor in the farm or even having a picnic, those are actually helpful. Yeah, I mean, if you there's so many, so many, so many insects. So you think about all the species of things on the planet, including fungus, including plants. Uh, one in four is a beetle. So we have so many insect species. There's over a million different insect species, and most, 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 most of them are beneficial, and like all of them do critical ecosystem stuff. 
and a handful of them end up being pests for our lives. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so if you're in the garden uh, and and uh, you see some insects, I guess I'd I'd hesitate a little bit before you know, grabbing that can of insect spray. Oh, absolutely. If you want to get fruits from your garden, vegetables from your garden, you need those pollinators. Yeah. How is it that they are are being threatened right now? It's just a hard life for insects in ecosystems. And we know a lot about bees because they're pretty key to how we eat our food and how we grow our food. Um, and they, there aren't as many flowers in ecosystems, so they're hungry. Uh, we use a lot of different pesticides, um, and insecticides are toxic to insects. <laughs> um, we also know that fungicides are playing a role in, uh. in pollinator decline. And then they have some parasites and diseases that they're dealing with, too. Can you tell us what the, the kind of the general standard uh, health is? How are people feeling right now about this whole bee collapse business? Right. I mean, so hist- bees are animals. Animals die, right? As beekeepers, you would lose 19% of your hives a year. Um, and these days, that average in the upper Midwest is about um, like 30 to 50. Um, so that's an unmanageable loss, right? Um, and we are managing it because of the way that bees, honeybees reproduce. But it's, it's hard to be a bee. It's hard to be a beekeeper. And we talk a lot about honeybees with this just because as beekeepers, we see them all the time. So we have all this data. We know that loss. But those over 400 native bees, most of them are solitary. So just finding them and counting them is uh, a significant amount of work. But most of them have pretty similar biologies. Hmm. um, They don't live in hives, so that varies, but they're exposed to the same things. So honeybees end up being uh, a great way to... Um, keep an eye on. They're, they're sort of like a, yeah. a telescope into the entire ecosystem because we manage yep. them and, and are yeah. in such close relationship to them. So you just said that, that instead of losing the, the normal about 19%, hive keepers are seeing a decline of 30 to 50% a year? A year, yeah. So there's some folks who... Uh, argue that this pollinator decline isn't happening because the total number of hives sometimes in the year are higher. Um, But that's like looking at your bank account when you get paid, right? And then not looking at all the things you have to pay for. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not the the right way to do it. Yeah, so losses are pretty huge. Do we know why this is happening? Yeah. It's that interacting uh, combination of factors, right? Lack of good food, um, pesticide exposure, um, and diversity of pesticide exposure and how those different pesticides interact with each other for pollinator health. We're learning more about that all the time. And then um, these different diseases and parasites. Wow. But if you're exposed to a, a pesticide um, and then you have this parasite, which all honeybee hives do, this varroa mite, mm. then you're less uh, able to uh, 
tolerate mite population. So diet, pesticide exposure, plus the the uh, incipient and, and I guess varroa mite, which I, I guess I hadn't realized mm-hmm. that that has become ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, there's some places, there's a researcher, Mark Seeley in New York, who looks at wild honeybee colonies. Honeybees are native to Europe and North Africa and Western Asia and were brought to the Americas by colonizers, um, but have lived in the Americas since then. Um, so there are a lot of wild honeybee colonies. And if you live, I think, a mile, maybe two miles from any other honeybee colonies, you can begin to develop resistance to Varroa. Wow. They're a parasite, so they don't want to kill their host, right? But they can easily jump to another honeybee hive. Honeybees forage like two to three miles from their hive, so they have a pretty large distance where they could go and drop off mites at the neighbor's hive. Your parasite doesn't want to kill you because you're the only way to live. Got it. <laughs> got it. Yeah. So... Okay, so you've got that 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 trilogy right there, which is uh, the the lack of access to food, the pest, and the the pesticides. Um, when it comes to access to food, how is it that we're lo- that 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 the bees aren't finding enough? What's going on? If you think about the way um, our farms have changed over time, um, we're planting more of our acreage, right? The kind of flowers, blooming weeds that uh, and wildflowers that existed along plant edges were pretty critical habitat for all kinds of stuff. Not just bees, but beneficial insects that would eat the pests that were eating your crop. Yeah, so getting rid of that means that there isn't anything to eat, there isn't anywhere to live, and we've seen insect populations decline. You know, Erin, you just mentioned something that is a really large, although people may not recognize it to be, cultural issue. And that is the notion of a farm that looks manicured. Um, It has been cleaned up of every single shrub that isn't the crop. It's been cleaned up along the fence edges. And so you don't have um, an acre that has hedgerows that has shrubbery and small trees and plants and herbs that are the natural habitat to so much of the insect diversity. Right. And so... And it's not... Oh, you go. No, thank you. (laughs) And, And so sometimes when you go driving through the landscape and you see a farm that may have these hedgerows, one observer may say what a mess and another observer says oh i'm so glad that those those lanes or little strips of highway for ecological diversity exist and i was just going to ask uh dave corbett is that something that that uh you see that those kinds of differences yeah um I think uh, it was, you go back 30, 40 years or 50 or 100 years even, uh, it was seen almost as a sign of laziness if you, uh, if you had uh, any, uh, anything that wasn't useful growing, uh, useful from a farming standpoint. And uh, 
I think you're seeing actually maybe a little bit more now because a lot of the farms don't pasture as much as they used to. And so a lot of the woodlots now are starting left, being left to go back to woods, which is probably good. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too, because it makes me think about the various kinds of conservation programs. Right that has, had been available uh, through the uh, USDA and other kinds of uh, more local uh, programming, those kinds of things really helped mm -hmm. to keep um, plant diversity right. on any farm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, not only do you then uh, suffer the disappearance of your pollinators when you start to have these chemically manicured kind of farms, but you also lose uh, a lot of... Um, bird diversity right mm -hmm. on the farm yeah and in the places where we've looked at so we haven't we've studied bees a lot but we these all these other insects we don't know that much about and there's these informal scientists in germany who've been just studying insects biomass the amount of insects in this forest by their home for 30 years and they've seen that total amount of insects go down by like 75 percent and in terms of those fence rows and um, dirty or not, if uh, depending on who you are, what you think. I mean, if you're a bee, <laughs> you think, oh, yum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and there are a lot of programs still. If you go to your county NRCS office, <laughs> then um, there's equip funding and CRP funding and some that's specific to honeybees that may still exist this year. Um, and your county office will know the most about what kind of funding streams exist to you as an ag landowner to convert some of your land back to habitat. And it's not just ag land, right? Like lawns are the same kind of deserts for bees, right? There aren't that many blooming plants in, in a grass lawn. So let's 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 focus on that a little bit because you've really kind of hit on a couple of things. Okay, so if you're a farmer, a first place to start might be going to your extension office and saying, okay, what programs are out there that'll help me um, put in the kinds of, of uh, landscape that I need to attract bees? But if you're a gardener, what yeah. should you be thinking about? Um, if you've ever seen bees on a plant before, uh, that's a plant bees like, right? <laughs> the U of M Bee Lab is run by Dr. Marla Spivak, and that's what she says, right? That's a plant that bees like you can plant it again a lot of your uh herby plants if you let them flower are delicious to bees like mints and dills and cilantro um and then we have such a diversity of bees and they like to eat nectar and pollen um from a diversity of flowers so there's this um entomologist and landscaper um in Minnetonka area, Heather Holm, who has an amazing uh, wealth of resources, including a couple field guides about who lives here bee-wise and what to plant for who. So she's got some good garden designs for bumblebees or for mason bees, these solitary bees. So it depends on who you want to attract. If you're building a monarch garden, right, that's one species and we know what they like, but if you want to attract a diversity of pollinators, uh, planting a diversity of things is great. 
All right. Can you give us uh, uh, those names again? Where is it that people can go in order to find out more? Yeah. So Heather Holm is Landscaping with Native Plants is her website. Okay. And the U of M, uh, Minnesota here, uh, B-Lab has great resources, too. All right, so a couple of good places to, to Google in order to find out what to plant because once you've got their lists, you can then take a look at your seed catalog and determine mm-hmm. which of those plants might work for you. And really anything that's a flower that isn't a cultivar has lots of good nectar and pollen. And some of our cultivars, we want them to be really showy and the way that... Um, they've been bred, the nectar and pollen producing parts aren't as prominent anymore, and there's like tons of fancy petals. As a flower to reproduce, you need uh, the anthers that produce the pollen, the nectar to attract somebody to come and eat and move that pollen. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes going for those little old-fashioned, it sounds like, flowers and flowering plants might yield more of the nectar that people hope to have available to the bees. Mm-hmm. Because yep. they, those older, older-fashioned ones do a good job, and many of the uh, seed catalogs I noticed this year actually have sections devoted to pollinators. Oh, a couple of years ago, maybe it's three years ago now, you worked hard in the state of Minnesota to get legislation passed that would be friendly to pollinators. Can you tell us what the status of all of that is? Yeah. So we've been continuing to work at the state level in Minnesota on pollinator-friendly policies. And at the legislature, there isn't really anything much happening this year. It's kind of a defensive time for this work. Um, But there is this, excuse me, Governor's Committee of Pollinator Protection. Um, So we're trying to come up with recommendations that will work for pollinators and also work for all these different landowners. One of these pesticides that is used a lot that we know is uh, toxic to bees and a driver of their decline are neonicotinoids. And they're a tool in toolboxes for people. And taking them away has a lot of repercussion on individual farmers. So figuring out how to support farmers in the transition. um, Those are recommendations that we're working on making now. Um, and they're in development, and we would love to hear from everybody. We um, are hearing a lot from ag industry, right, which is not, they're not individual farmers. They're profiting off of these chemicals that we know to be killing bees, Mm. and we need to be hearing from people too. So anybody who wants to call should. Well, that's very interesting (laughs) that there's actually, it's interesting, uh, Erin, that there should actually be um, controversy around this. If people want to know more, what website should they go to? So my website is pollinatemn.org. The Xerxes Society is um, an invertebrate conservation nonprofit, and they're based in Portland, but they have staff here in the Midwest. They are excellent for helping you find those uh money streams for putting habitat in on your farm. There's also lots of what to plant for who and who is here anyway resources. Um, More information on how those different pesticides are impacting pollinators and insect populations. 
And then the U of M B Lab has lots of resources, too. Great. All right. And Erin, uh, you are the uh, executive director and founder of Pollinate Minnesota. So I know your website is loaded with terrific <laughs> information uh, and uh, links to resources that, that are really, really helpful. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.